This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Senate has passed the Liberal MP uh, bill to make the anthem more general, uh, gender neutral. Uh, how do you feel about it? Do you care? Is it something that you... That's the, only, uh, that's the way I'm looking at this. Uh, feel free to let your thoughts be known. Phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. And, of course, send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900chml.com. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, of course, uh, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He's with us now. Michael, do you think that many Canadians even know all the words to the national anthem? <laughs> Probably not, and I think that's actually the same with most national anthems of different countries as well that people have a bit of an understanding of it. You know, and obviously, I would say probably the, the one exception might be the American national anthem, because so many people are familiar with listening to it, either because they've attended uh, baseball games, football games, etc., and they just they know h- how it goes. And it's just such a well-known and beautifully crafted anthem that I'm not surprised by this. In terms of Canada's national anthem, no. And I would also doubt that most people know how many changes our national anthem has gone through over the years. Mm. You know, there are different versions in English, there are different versions in French, via the translation from one to the other. As we know, when you go from one language to another, it's not necessarily a perfect flow, and sometimes it changes the meaning a little bit. But no, I don't think a lot of people would know uh, the national anthem by heart. I don't think they would necessarily know what in thy son's command, the old line necessarily meant one way or the other, and they may have their own interpretations for it. And yes, I agree that this is not the biggest issue that is facing Canada. Yes, I mean, I don't agree with the decision to switch it, but I don't think it's going to cause, you know, irreparable harm to Canadians, and they're going to be any less patriotic because of a slight change. But I think, unfortunately, though, it's part of a bigger trend where we're seeing a lot of things change from, say, uh, Langevin Block, which is where I worked when I was in Ottawa working for Prime Minister Stephen Harper, is now called the Office of the Prime Minister because the man who was named after, you know, when it came to the residential school issue, had a bit of a spotty record. We saw the statue of Cornwallis go down in Halifax. We saw a pub in uh, Kingston, which was originally Sir John A. Macdonald's first law office, have to change his name because of public pressure and on and on. So, unfortunately, I think this little switch to the national anthem is part of a much bigger and broader theme, which is that people are just becoming sensitive about everything. And if it pricks their ears just a little bit to hear something, or they just don't like a particular turn of phrase, or they look at a statue and say, well, that historical figure said a lot of bad things many years ago when the world was different, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't hold muster today, this is where it's all coming down to. So... The change to the anthem is not a big deal. But if you believe a little bit in tradition and you believe a little bit in trying to understand what history is all about, you'll know that history is not perfect. And no word, no line, no statue, no human being is perfect either. How much time, energy would have been spent on this? A lot. As you said yourself, roughly 18 months of negotiations over this. 18 months of time that we spend, or, or that, sorry, that, the, that basically in Ottawa spent via federal MPs who are paid for with the taxpayers' money to be salaried and to stay there, going through committees and changes and discussions and, and whatnot. I'm not saying that obviously this was their first priority each and every day, but it was obviously a priority for a long period of time. 
And we also know that the change was initially proposed by Maurice Boulanger, who is no longer with us, having passed away from ALS recently, you know, who was a liberal MP who was respected by many people across the aisle. He did it, you know, to try to make it gender neutral overall, thinking that it was the best thing for the national anthem, so they carried forward with his wishes. And unfortunately, in Justin Trudeau's Canada, things like this get carried forward for a long period of time. It's And here's the typical email that I'm receiving right now. The government sure. can't do anything, but they can do this. Exactly. Of all the things we should be concentrating exactly. on... And you pointed this out, and believe me, it was the first thing I was thinking, too. And we're not alone. Lots of other Canadians of all different political stripes and orientations are thinking it, too. Of all the things for us to worry about in an unsafe world, with NAFTA dangling by a thread, I mean, with, with issues that we're discussing in Canada with a prime minister, for example, who became the first PM to ever be found guilty on ethics charges, you know, due to the fact that he took a free trip from a person he regarded as a friend who the, the old ethics commissioner claimed they hadn't had an association for close to 30 years, et cetera, et cetera. Of all the things we're worried about today, this is the thing that they spent the most time on or that they concentrated on to some extent during their daily routines. That's what kills me. Again, like I said, not to be a broken record, is it going to change the nature of the country that this line was adjusted? Of course not, and I don't think anyone would argue that. But why they would spend any amount of time on something so trivial and so meaningless in the grand scheme of things, I, I don't know. It just makes how, me how do you think about this, politics. How do you think this is going to play in the public then? Because you know, many, will, many will say either they're indifferent, they don't care, this, that, or the other, or they have a position either way. But as you mentioned, certainly not a priority. So how do you think this is going to play? And was this politics? I mean, it certainly is timely, as you mentioned, Michael. Yes. This all coming to a head uh, just as all these changes are happening, and specifically the magnifying glass is on Parliament Hill. Well, let's put it this way. I mean, obviously people who wanted the change will be happy. That's quite obvious. But how will the, re- you know, how will the rest of the country and, quite frankly, the rest of the world look at it? I don't think they're going to look at us in a praiseworthy fashion at all. National anthems of other countries have changed over time, either because, say, in ex-communist countries, you know, the, go- the quote-unquote government fell or the tyrants fell, so they needed to change the words to update it to a more peaceful and democratic process. In a country that is a democracy like Canada, I think that lots of our neighbors, including the United States, the UK, Germany, France, and others, you know, they're not going to say a great deal, but they're going to look at it and probably smirk to themselves and say, well, what are the Canadians wasting time on this for? Mm. Is it really that meaningful? And here at home, I don't know. I mean, the polls that I saw didn't see or didn't seem to allude to a profound interest from coast to coast to coast, that the, that the national anthem had to be changed. It was more people like shrugging, saying, well, fine if you want to, but I don't know why you're spending time <laughs> on this. That's exactly it. Uh, are, can you bring the Me Too movement into this discussion? Well, should, should you? Well, let's put it this way. I'm obviously, as I said to you earlier, I'm associating it with other things that we're seeing in terms of cultural appropriation that would, that's also been a big discussion starting as of last year. But yes, I guess that the Me Too movement, probably at least at the tail end, may have kind of pushed it past the goal line, so to speak. Uh, the process had been going on for 18 months, and that's much older than the Me Too campaign. That was, it's much older than when we first heard about 
Harvey Weinstein in the pages of the New York Times last year. But certainly, if it had hit a final roadblock somewhere, and there were some liberals saying that, you know, the Tory senators were trying to hold it up, they were trying to railroad it. You may remember that late last year, there were some small articles of discussion about that. So is it possible that they just sort of looked and said, well, you know what, society has changed, Canadians are changing, quite frankly, we don't have a leg to stand on? Maybe. And that probably pushed it over. Hmm. Uh, I can't let you go without asking you your opinion on what's happening with the Ontario PCs. Give us an update. Obviously, convention rules have been uh, laid down at this point. We yeah. have a little bit more clear picture. Uh, what are your thoughts? Overall, I mean, obviously, the thing is still very, very messy as we speak, just because of the internal and external problems that have been happening for a while. I'm sure you've discussed a lot of them the past couple of weeks. We've talked about it. I've talked about it with others, and many Canadian pundits, writers, etc., are talking about it in general. There's just there's a lot of focus on the Ontario PC leadership race. And quite frankly, people are just sort of looking at themselves puzzled as candidates sort of express interest in running. Others drop out. Allegations that it was an inside job, as we heard from federal MP from Barry, um, Alex Nuttall, who actually replaced Patrick Brown. That's Patrick Brown's old seat yeah. federally. And you also had Vic Fidelli, who was the interim leader, who looked like he was going to run for the permanent leadership. Then he drops out. And as of right now, the only confirmed candidate is Doug Ford. There is nobody else right now. This doesn't mean there won't be more. Of course there will be. And there's discussions that Caroline Mulroney may run, who's the daughter of former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, Rod Phillips, who's a businessman and was the former president of Post Media, who owns papers like the National Post and others. There's also discussion possibly that, um, that Neil Davis, the son of former Ontario Premier Bill Davis may run, and Christine Elliott, a former MPP who lost to Patrick Brown in the uh, 2015 Ontario PC leadership race, the one that happened about three years ago, is also toying with jumping in, too. I guess the only thing I can say right now, Scott, without being too wordy, wordy is that an outsider will lead the party going, for, going forward. There is no question of that, because it, and what I mean by that is that there is nobody in caucus who really has a viable chance of winning anymore because all of them, from Vic Fidelli to Lisa McLeod and others, are just sort of saying, or Monty McNaughton too, are just saying, no, we're not, we're, you know, not going to do it. So, look, things will, clear, will sort themselves out. It's going to be a very fast process. On March 10th, we'll know who the new Ontario PC leader is. But as of right now, Doug Ford is sitting pretty by himself for at least a few more days, maybe a week or so. And the more he stands alone, the more interesting it will become, because I don't know how Mr. Ford, who has issues and problems with the people's guarantee, the policy platform of the Ontario PCs, especially when it comes down to a carbon tax. And I don't blame him for being critical of that. I don't favor it either. I don't know how he's going to become a viable leader if the party is saying, you must run this platform, and he's saying, well, I, you know, most of it's sure, but we'll, you know, we'll see about other things. That's going to be very hard. It was interesting because I was listening to him on 640 in Toronto yesterday, yeah. and man, yeah. he is keeping the message simple, and I can see this resonating with voters, Michael. It's, well, you yeah. know, it's, they're taxing the hell out of the middle class. Yep. The money's going down the drain. There's nothing but scandal. 
um, y- you know, I can see he's saying all the right things that people will identify with and do not like about this government. And he's yep. cutting right to the chase exactly. without the BS, without the flowers, without the political mumbo jumbo. And I think that's going to resonate, Michael. Yeah, like it or not, whether people like Doug Ford or they don't like Doug Ford, his message resonates very well in this day and age in politics. It's perfect. And look, again, you have to also go back. The message of his late brother, Rob Ford, the former mayor of Toronto, aside from the horrific shenanigans we saw over a couple of years of his four-year period as mayor, or, you know, basically... He has a message, or his late brother had a message of retail politics, putting it right back to the people. And Doug Ford is no different that way. He helped craft that wave that led his brother to victory, even though his brother obviously had sat as a city councillor for a number of years. But they, the Ford family has figured out a very good method for success in politics, and that's taking it, as you say, with a very simplistic touch and tone and taking it right back to the people, that I, we're tired of the government elites, we're taxed to death, we need to look, you know, like take care of all of our different pennies and ensure that people have a better quality of life in Ontario. I'm not suggesting that Doug Ford is going to win at this stage. It depends who else runs against him. But anybody who thinks or dismisses the fact that Doug Ford has a solid chance of winning this thing has ignored politics from the last few years. Just remember, ladies and gentlemen, whenever you mock him, Look who the president of the United States is, mm. and you think about it. Exactly. And and I think you brought up a valid point when you said take it to the people. It, like, he just kept coming back to the taxpayer. Yep. The taxpayer, the taxpayer, the taxpayer. And I, I think that's going to resonate. And it, it, I think it's going to be fascinating. Your other point was, is he's been out here getting this stage all by himself for the yep. last few days, and however long it is before someone else throws their hat into the ring. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this momentum plays out. Absolutely, it definitely is. And look, Doug Ford, no one is saying that he's perfect. You know, he trips up over his words sometimes. We hear it all the time. He doesn't always necessarily express himself brilliantly. But I have known Doug Ford and Rob Ford for a long period of time, and I don't know if I've ever said in this station or not. I've certainly said it publicly many times. I voted for his brother in 2010. I voted for Doug in 2014 in the, both the mayoral elections. So believe me, I am not anti-Ford. Far from it. The only thing I really, truly worry about is I don't know if Doug Ford, if he became leader of the Ontario PCs, could keep the coalition together because Hmm. he's been so volatile on a lot of different issues, and he tends to be a lightning rod for controversy, maybe not to the same extent as his brother, but not terribly different. And that's not a knock against Doug. You know, ultimately, in the end, he is a bright guy. He is a good campaigner. He will do extremely well speaking with people and going door to door to door. He is very good at doing these sorts of things, and that is to his advantage. But if he really wants to become a provincial leader, and ultimately, as shocking as this may sound to some of your listeners, the Ontario Premier, he has got to build political bridges and not burn them down. Because if he doesn't do that, he won't succeed. Yeah, he can't take that from the Trump playbook. Uh, Distraction and and, and the baggage and, and again, uh, the ability to work with others. I mean, that certainly is something that is a concern. Michael Tobis with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Have a great weekend. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A criminologist and former officer has commented on the MacArthur case saying that uh, the revelations about the victims' bodies and the fact that they were hidden revealed that the perpetrator is likely 
a psychopath. To talk more about this, uh, Ju uh, Young Lee is with us, assistant, assistant professor of sociology, University of Toronto, and an expert on these sorts of matters, and is with us now. Ju Young, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, we really appreciate this. Thank you for having me on. How do you define psychopath? So this is one of the co most common misunderstandings. So a psychopath, psychopathy, I should say, is a personality disorder for someone who lacks empathy, who uh, manipulates others, who has a sort of glib charm, and who often exhibits uh, a range of other kinds of narcissistic behaviors. And that's very different from what people call a psycho. And, and sometimes people in the public use them interchangeably. Psycho is shorthand or slang for somebody who's psychotic or who's suffering from psychosis, the, the, the formal psychiatric term. And that's when somebody has lost touch with reality. They hear voices. They may be suffering from a schizophrenic break. They may uh, also be suffering from depression. Um, the difference, of course, is that a psychopath is somebody who knows the difference between right and wrong. Uh, but just doesn't care. Hmm. So uh, that would be the main difference between the two, is a psychopath knows right from wrong. Yeah, and they have a, a good, I guess, grasp of what's happening in reality. Uh, people who are psychotic often hear, hear voices in their heads or see things that, see people or things that don't exist to others and act impulsively uh, because of that. But a psychopath is somebody who, in all other senses of the word, is sane, uh, but they just lack that critical part of what makes a social person, which is that they, they don't have empathy. Is one more dangerous than the other? Can there be scenarios where they're not dangerous? Definitely, definitely. So there's been quite a bit of work on this um, about people who are considered, quote-unquote, pro-social psychopaths. Um, I would say that the psychopath is typically considered the more dangerous of the two. Uh, a person who's psychotic can be medicated um, and the warning signs are a little bit easier to spot if a person begins to say, hey, I see a person and they're talking to me hmm. and they're around other people and they say, no, you don't. Um, that's a really easy way to kind of tell that a person is suffering from psychosis. Um, it's not like a, a foolproof method by any means, but it's one example. A psychopath, however, um, is often able to hide the fact that they have these antisocial fantasies and, and beliefs and ideas. Um, and to date, there aren't a whole lot of really well-established interventions or ways of treating a psychopath. Um, one of the uh, hardest things, I think, in this whole field is trying to figure out how can we collectively really stop psychopaths. Um, we do know, however, that there are some people who are psychopaths who are, are, are not serial killers, who don't go out and harm people. Um, and typically, we find them in high high-status, high-pressure positions like in law, like in uh, surgery, um, maybe even in government. There are a number of different positions where a psychopath is able to derive that sense of pleasure that they get from controlling people and, and, and being in charge. What about uh, a sexual predator? What about uh, you know, every, the, the whole Harvey Weinstein or Stein thing is, or Weinstein issue has come out and, mm -hmm. and, and, and question of politics and entertainment and, and industry and such. Is this behavior common there? Is there a, an association there? Um, if there is, it's not a very strong one. I haven't seen a lot of credible research 
that makes that link between uh, sexual assault and psychopathy. Um, I guess one of the more telling traits is somebody who lies a lot, somebody who gets a thrill out of seeing other people suffer in different ways. Mm. Um, a person but they don't necessarily have to be dangerous. Exactly. Like They could just like to manipulate and trick people. Just be bad people. Yeah, pretty much. Um, how come one is treatable and one isn't? I think that that's just a real commentary on where the state of psychiatry is. And again, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm trained as a sociologist. Um, so I should, I guess, put that out there. But um, I, I guess the field of psychiatry has a better handle on how to sedate someone. That's usually what happens. They're prescribed various kinds of antipsychotic drugs which sedate a person um, and, and get rid of those voices or those, those visions. Of course, those are not perfect methods either. And, you know, the people who are prescribed these drugs don't necessarily lead happy and fulfilling lives, but uh, it does help control some of those thoughts. The psychopath, to be honest, is something that we don't really understand that well. There are numerous colleagues of mine who are working on this stuff, uh, but it's still a real burgeoning area of research. Is it hereditary? There are some uh, researchers who are really exploring that, the links between, um, you know, that, that are looking into that as well. Um, I think there, the, the, the kind of prevailing idea is that there's always an interaction between a person's DNA and their propensity to be a psychopath and then environmental influences. Hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, backgrounds, could they be similar? Are, there di- are they different? Is there any common denominator here? between the psychopath and person yes. who's psychotic? Yes. Uh, not really. I, I don't think there's a lot of parallels. Um, you know, psychosis can be brought on by a lot of different things. Like you can even, you know, a person can have a psychotic break if they have sleep deprivation. If they haven't slept well for a long time, they can become delusional and begin to hear things and hallucinate. Um, uh, psychopathy is something that, you know, researchers are increasingly trying to find uh, and trying to diagnose earlier and earlier in, in, in life because there are some examples of people who exhibited signs of psychopathy as children. One, one infamous story is of Ted Bundy, one of the most notorious serial killers from uh, the U.S. who is a psychopath. There's a story about him as a young boy um, arranging knives around um, a sleeping aunt or uncle and, and sort of smiling and laughing when the person woke up and was scared. So th- there are some examples of this kind of surfacing very early on, and I think researchers are trying to, to their best ability, uh, you know, find warning signs early on. Uh, Ju Young Lee is with us, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of uh, Toronto. Ju Young, um, if they know right from wrong, if they know this being a psychopath knows right from wrong, how do they justify their actions? Um, I think you know one of the things that they don't do is they don't take into account the feelings of others. Um, the psychopath will typically see the world as their oyster. They'll see other people as objects for their own gratification, whether that's social, material, or even sexual. Um, so they don't have that same thought process of anticipating, will this hurt the other person? Uh, how will this make the other person feel? The psychopath doesn't really care about that. They really care about the self. Were they victimized? There's a lot of work, again, that points to the fact that you know, sometimes 
Um, psychopaths have also experienced trauma, and that this makes them into a callous person, somebody who doesn't take into account other people's feelings. But that is also another area that's still kind of emerging right now. So we don't know if this is learned behavior, or if the environment has anything to do with this, bad childhood, all that stuff? I think there's the short answer, and, um, you know, a colleague of mine, Sasha Reed, is, is, is really doing some interesting work in this area. Uh, the short answer is that there's a kind of interaction effect amongst all of those things, that there is a hereditary um, propensity, there is an environmental impact, there is the, the presence of trauma, of, of not forming good relationships with parents, with, with other siblings and friends. Like These things are all sort of part of this uh, laundry list of risk factors that contributes to people becoming psychopaths. Does, is it possible to, re, uh, to reach these people? I mean, what's the difference between someone who's the CEO of a company and, and is just being a real jerk, yeah. uh, as opposed to someone who goes off the handle and does what this man did? Sure. I think, well, I, I guess I should say just you know, off the bat, I don't know for a, a fact that uh, the suspect is a psychopath. Right. But um, I think one of the key differences, and this is where the sociology is important, are social circumstances. If a person is placed into a, a condition where they have outlets, where they can uh, do things that are gratifying to the self, where they're put in control, where they're allowed to, to kind of, I guess, exercise some of these selfish needs, um, that's sort of one of the, the clues that we have. There's so as long as there's an outlet of some sort. Yeah, I think so. One of the stories that we know about a, a psychopath who is a serial killer is a guy named Dennis Rader, uh, who is also nicknamed the BTK killer and the Wichita Strangler. He's known, he was a psychopath, and, or he is a psychopath, and um, he didn't kill people for many years. And people have hypothesized that during this time he was in a position, I think he, was, he worked as a city official where he did a bunch of home inspections and all of the accounts of him from that time were that he was a terrible boss, he was Machiavellian, he bossed people around, um, but this also kind of coincided with a period of dormancy. So, um, again, it's just one case, and it's really hard to kind of generalize off of that, but I think there are examples like that that give people some hope to say maybe there are ways to kind of curb some of their um, you know, violent antisocial tendencies. Uh, the situation with uh, the Bruce MacArthur case, and this is none of this is proven in court, obviously, at this point, but it appears that bodies found in planters and such, obviously well-planned, this must be incredibly consuming. Yeah, I mean, this, this case, whether or not it's uh, the gentleman they have in uh, custody, it definitely exhibits that this person was thinking about this a lot. He went through a lot of planning. Uh, he was very careful to cover his tracks. And it seems like something that was planned meticulously. So it must have been quite an undertaking that, uh, you know, perhaps he had been doing for a long time. This is something that wasn't like a spur-of-the-moment thing, like the, the fact that he was transporting bodies, hiding them in planters and so forth, um, suggests that this was sort of uh, an obsession of his, perhaps, in that he had spent a lot of time fantasizing about this as well. Do they want to get caught? That's one of the, I guess, misconceptions. Most serial killers don't want to get caught. Um, a lot of people think they do because some of them will do brazen things to kind of taunt the police. They'll write letters or they'll 
um, pose their victims' bodies in public, uh, kind of inviting uh, police attention. But at least the cases that I've studied and read about, uh, most serial killers don't want to get caught. They enjoy the freedom that uh, they enjoy having freedom. They enjoy uh, doing these things, hurting other people, and you know, getting caught is actually sometimes an unfortunate part in their their own eyes, at least, of these investigations. Uh, again, getting back to uh, and and obviously this is what makes someone a psychopath. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I still can't get over the fact that they don't have any empathy for the people that they are doing this to, who a lot of the times they befriend uh, or their or their families. That just doesn't resonate with them at all. Do they get pleasure out of that? Yeah, I think that. It's something that's very difficult for the average person to grasp because we have all been socialized into being, you know, moral social actors. Is it just socialized, though, Ju Young, or is it just, you know, we we have empathy? We we you know we're we're not designed to kill each other. We've grown beyond that, or no? Um, so this is one of the interesting areas, to be honest. It's it's really this interaction. Um, I guess what I was just alluding to is that. Most of us have a hard time understanding even just killing another person, uh, let alone enjoying it. Um, you know, people who go to war, people who are in gangs and, and the mob, and for example, uh, have killed people and they, they talk about it, but they also show remorse. Um, serial killers have a harder time showing that and they really um, are able to com- compartmentalize what they've done. The one, one example, though, the one exception I should say is that serial killers do do seem to show some remorse when it comes to thinking about how their actions are going to affect their families. Um, this is something that came out, in, again, in the Dennis Rader trial uh, when he was being sentenced for strangling to death multiple victims in Wichita. He broke down for a moment and, and spoke that he, and said to the court that he was very um, worried about how people were going to treat his family, his wife, and children after the fact. Uh, so there does seem to be some space for empathy, but it's very truncated compared to the normal person. Uh, it was interesting. I, I, I've talked to uh, lawyer Tim Danson several times who represented the uh, Mahaffey family and French family during the Bernardo killings. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about Bernardo uh, and the same sort of thing and saying that he takes pleasure mm-hmm. out of dragging these people uh, through the parole process every however many years it happens yeah. and, and so on and so forth, knowing that he won't get out, but just so, you know, again, he can enjoy having the attention. Yeah, well that's the other thing which is that psychopaths really enjoy attention. They uh, also often exhibit lots of narcissistic qualities. They enjoy uh, feeling as if they have control. They enjoy outsmarting uh, police. They get a rush out of all of this because it all comes back to the self. It all becomes this kind of self-gratifying process where... How would they survive in prison? Well, Especially in seclusion. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a difficult, it's a very lonely process for them. I mean, because they're cut off from this world and the ability to manipulate and control. But there is some examples, however, of psychopaths still finding ways to to kind of win over and control prison guards and other fellow prisoners. They, they put on this mask and they do exactly what other people um, expect of them and they mm. sort of become their favorite person but it's all part of this game that it's all part of this way that in some way they're going to benefit from 
winning over the confidence and trust of others. Can the average person identify these traits with someone that they meet, or, or, or do you have to be an expert in this field? Can, can you pick this out in people? You can kind of see glimpses of it, but to formally be known as a psychopath, there's, there's a number of different tests. That what psych- would you look for, though, just to the average? The average person, I would say um, somebody who compulsively lies, that, that could be one tip-off. Um, somebody who just enjoys manipulating other people and, and sort of shows a callousness towards other people's grief and, um, you know, struggles. Like, those are, those are some signs, but to go from that to being officially a psychopath is, is still a big jump. There's, there's a number of tests that psychiatrists administer to really, to really make that. Ju Young Lee has been with us, Associate Professor of uh, Sociology, University of Toronto, expert when it comes to this sort of thing, especially gun violence. Fascinating, fascinating topic. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Hasbro, do you play Monopoly? I used to, you know what I find fascinating is I got the Monopoly game when I was a kid, probably, I don't know, 8 to 10 years old. Loved it. Used to always have the little car because I'm a car guy, and my kids still play the same game today. The old board game still in relatively good shape. We still have all the pieces, all the cards, most of the money, and it's funny to see because underneath the box lid is my name written when I was like three year, or uh, not three years old, eight years old, ten years old maybe. My phone numbers on the box in case I guess I lent the game out and you didn't know where the Monopoly game came from, and my kids play it all the time. And uh, we actually had quite a rousing game going on between uh, Christmas and New Year's. We were up at the cottage for a bit. And, you know, when we're doing something like that, we'll get the game going and leave it there for a couple of days. So it just continues. It just brews. And uh, it can often lead into uh, my son and daughter going at it over properties, what have you. Uh, they'll try to stay on someone's property or in their house or hotel and then hopefully roll the dice and get out before the person knows that, hey, that's my property. You owe me $14 rent. Hasbro has unveiled a newest edition of Monopoly. It's the Cheaters edition. Exactly. Now think about this. It comes out August 1st. The game challenges players to pull off a variety of of, well, unsavory moves, such, such, such as shortchanging an opponent for, on the rent, sneaking onto a hotel and uh, sneaking a hotel onto one of your properties, faking a dice roll, pocketing an extra hundred bucks when passing go. But successful cheaters are rewarded. Failed felonies are punished heavy-handed, though. So if you cheat and get away with it, it's not so bad. Is this right? Am I just being too naive here? Have I cheated in Monopoly? I don't know. Maybe when I was writing my name on the box. Maybe I cheated my sister out. Let's bring in uh, Nick Shire, co-owner of Gameopolis, and ask him his opinion. Nick, thanks for taking the time to join us today. We appreciate this. Hey, no problem. Tell everybody about Gameopolis. So Gameopolis is a board game store down or board game lounge downtown uh, Hamilton on King Street. So we have uh, 
over a thousand games. You can come and stay as long as you like for five dollars. Uh, we're licensed. We have a full menu, um, and it's really great. This is a great idea. Give your exact address. Oh, it's two twenty three King Street East. 223 King Street East. All right, so obviously I'm guessing that Monopoly is there. Nick, what are your thoughts on this latest edition? I think it's all right. Um, it, uh, I can see how they're trying to breathe some new life into the game. Um, this idea of, like, cheating at a game is, isn't super new. Like, even, I'm fairly certain, at least my family plays Euchre, that if you can steal the deal without anybody realizing it, you've got it. So, uh, and, and there's a card game called Cheat, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, these types of games, um, this sort of like deception type of game is really popular this past year. So maybe Monopoly's just trying to, to get in on it a little bit. So, uh, you know, and you bring up a valid point. That's what gaming is about. I mean, it's it's about gaming your opponent in any way. And, and certain games certainly uh, use that skill more than others. But when you've got a tried and true game like Monopoly... Uh, you know, you know, and I know there's been a bazillion different versions of Monopoly, just like there's a, a, a bazillion different versions of Trivial Pursuit. But do you think that cheating should be rewarded in a game? You know, you know, those other games are designed that way. I don't know if this one was. So, do you see where I'm coming from, or I'm just being an old guy here? Yeah. Well, it seems also you get punished for it too, right? So it doesn't sound like you have to cheat necessarily, as long as you're being really smart just play fairly and then catch everybody else cheating and then you you you're ahead right so are we to are we to assume that everyone who plays a cheating game of monopoly is cheating <laughs> i guess you, can you play you i wonder i wonder if you can play a cheating game of monopoly and not cheat and win it's possible i know there are some other games that wrote like it's called um I forget the name of the game, but the big part of the game is you're trying to bluff your opponent. Right. And you can play that game straight and win. And multiple people i played with have, have beaten me when I was trying to cheat. So uh, I'm sure it's fine. Do you think this will uh, get the attention of Monopoly players? Do you think it will introduce new people to the game? And how do you think purists like me will feel about this? Um, well, you, I think you're pretty clear that you don't like it too much, but, um, we actually posted it, we posted it on our Facebook, um, page asking what people thought about it. And we've already got a few people saying that they're really excited about it. So I think, you know, I mean, if somebody put it in front of me, Nick, I'd certainly play it because I guess we know all ahead of time that, that you're, you, you, you may be, you know, uh, cheating in this game. That's, as you said, uh, that's the idea, you know, but I'm taking the moral high ground here. Is this what we should be introducing our kids to? Like, I mean, you know, I, I was a banker at 10 years old. I had to had everything. I was going to, you know, I, I was going to take everyone, rake everyone over the coals. But, gee, I played by the rules. Uh, do you think this sends the wrong message? It, well, see, there is punishment, right? It's not like you can get away scot-free. And right. also, it's also... But there's really, only, there, there's really only punishment if you get caught. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't but get also, caught, you're rewarded. Yeah. It's... It is good, though, to know that maybe people are out there to try and take advantage of you a little mm. bit. Maybe that's good to, to oh, be thinking about. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought of that. Do people cheat on board games when they're in your establishment? Do they play by the rules? Is there always someone in the group that's trying to get the upper hand? Sometimes. It depends on how aggressive the game is, but often it's not too bad. We have thought about putting up a little cheater wall, like, you know, the birthday wall with the photos. But... um <laughs> <laughs> really? Now, yeah. well, would that be a wall of pride or a wall of shame, Nick? I mean, could that keep people out of your establishment or bring them more, bring more in? I want, I want, uh, I want Nick to put me up the wall there. <laughs> Absolutely. 
So uh, if this game, when this game becomes available, I guess it's August 1st, it's not out yet, uh, will this be one that's in your store? Yeah, I imagine we'll pick it up. We might as well. We, um, Especially our Monopoly games get played quite a bit, so I'm sure we could afford to get a new one here to to make it a little bit nicer and newer. Uh, you said, and, and obviously the reason that they're doing this is because, you know, you just can't have enough with the old Monopoly game made back in the 1930s. you got to keep constantly updating. And I think my kids have one somewhere where it actually has debit cards. And oddly yeah. enough, yeah. They, ne- they never play that one. They play the original one. Uh, <laughs> uh, do these sort of next edition of games have as much appeal as the first generation, do you think? Um. I don't know. It depends on what you're really into. Like, I we have a version here that's uh, like a Star Wars monopoly, and people are really into Star Wars, especially with the new movies coming out. Mm-hmm. So I think it really depends. Um, how does a like Star War? How does a Star Wars monopoly? What do you buy? What do you do? It's mostly the same. It's yeah. just the same game, but just different names and stuff. Different properties, different whatever. Yeah. All right. What's the biggest game that that draws the most attention at your place right now? Um, I think Pandemic. Pandemic is a big one right now. It's a cooperative game. Uh, you're working together against the board game. Uh, there's diseases spreading across the world, and you're trying to, to stop them. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. How old is this game? Um, it's a few years old now. It's like maybe five years, but uh, they introduced this new type of game. It's a legacy game where every time you play it, the game changes permanently. So it's really exciting to play through and see what happens every time you play it. So there's lots of new product coming out as well as the old standbys that people are really oh, interested yeah, in. Yeah, we, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, tons. We buy probably four new games a month at least. Good for you. How's business, Nick? Yeah. Good. Busy. Um Summer is a little bit harder for us, but, um, you know, we've got good air conditioning, so that always helps. (laughs) Nick Shire has been with us, co-owner of Gameopolis. And once again, give your address, Nick. It's 223 King Street, East Hamilton. All right, thanks, Nick. Good luck with all of this. Thanks. And and, and, way to call the cheaters to task. You put them up on that wall, my friend. Light them up, too. (laughs) Thanks. Appreciate it, Nick. Let's bring in Maureen Dennis, Mama 4 parenting expert and founder of WeWelcome.ca. Uh, she is with us now. Maureen, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Hey, good to see you. Am I being an old fart here with the cheating monopoly here? You know, whenever <laughs> whenever I bring the game out, and my, I got an old original uh, game here, Maureen. I mean, it's yep. even got my writing on it from when I was a 10-year-old kid. The kids still enjoy it. But, yep. yeah, there's times when they'll get into fisticuffs over stuff. And I try to keep them on the up and up, and you can't cheat. And if you land on somebody's property, you got to pay. What sort of message are we sending here? You know, it's interesting. I read one of those uh, BuzzFeed things that said that the royal family have banned playing Monopoly. So there's definitely some uh, some rage that can come involved. And and this monop this type this type of Monopoly or Monopoly in general. In general, wow, in really? General. Yeah. Well, they're they're playing with real life, though, those guys. <laughs> I suppose, I suppose. But yeah, I think there's definitely, I mean, it's one of those games that you learn a lot of life lessons through, right? You you have to make decisions, You and I think cheating is one of those decisions. Now, there's a difference between cheating and having the rules not clear, right? Or some families play different rules than other families, yeah, so when you yeah. mix it up, sometimes there's some um, argument over, you know, what's the right way to play. Right. But Straight out, like full on cheating. That's a life lesson. You got to learn it somewhere. So, in other words, you never let little Jimmy sit next to the bank because he's going to swipe it all. There'll be nothing left by the totally. end of the game. 
Have you met my sister? No, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was talking to uh, Rick Shire, co-owner of, of Gameopolis, and as he pointed out, he goes, you know, there's lots of games that involve bluffing. There's lots of games that, but at least you know that within the games. That's part yeah. of it. Uh, but maybe, I guess, if you're playing Cheater's Edition of Monopoly, you're ready to, you know. You're ready to play with cheaters, I guess. Um, it might be an interesting... I mean, I haven't played the game, to be honest. Um, but it might be interesting if you are having some challenges with uh, cheating and lying. Um, I have one kid that that, that was, a, was a challenge, a stage that we went through. Yeah. Um, so it might be a, an interesting way to call it straight out. Right? Well, you know, depending on the kid. Well, Nick said this. He said, you know, uh, there are cheaters in life, and this teaches life lessons and 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 how to be aware of it. And but you know, there are cheaters in life. That's one lesson to be taught, as opposed to hey, you know, yeah. you, you can win doing that too, as long as Here's you don't exactly. get caught. Does it? <laughs> I say- think it'll probably be a great gift to uh, to give to all the. All the cheaters in your life. Well, sure. By the time dinner rolls around, especially at a holiday like Christmas, I mean, no one will be talking to each other. <laughs> exactly. So uh, how do you address this with kids, that it is, it's actually called the cheater's edition? How, what's the lesson there when you're sitting there with the 10 and 12-year-old and you're ready for a family game? Well, I think you've got to make sure that it's the right family game for you. Um, if it's something that you can have some fun with and, you know, there's not going to be full out, uh, brawls over it, then, um, you know, it's, it's a game and it's how you can have some fun with it. But if it's, if it's a bone of contention within the family already, let's not, let's not go there. Uh, what sort of life lessons can you learn from playing board games? Oh my gosh, so many life lessons. I mean, there's different, uh, if you look at Monopoly, I mean, you're, you're doing money, you're, um, you're, I don't want to say gambling of sorts, but you're taking calculated risks. You've got to, I mean, as simple as taking turns, um, trading, mortgaging properties. Like there's so many things that go into that game. I mean, there's, my mom still has hers from the 1950s as well. Like it's, it's, it's one of those games that they continually take a new spin on. I mean, I, I mean, I remember when they got the debit card version. Yeah, my kids uh, have that, but they don't play that one. They play the original one. Right, because who doesn't like to feel some call, you know, cold hard money in their hand? Yeah. Um, and that's our favorite one too. And having the different the co- different color money. I mean, you're sorting, you're counting. Um, and that's at the most basic level. Uh, with our guys, we play um, as teams so that the little guys can still be oh, a part of it. That's a good and idea. So, you know, they can, they can move the piece around and count how many spaces. Um, there's lots. I mean, it's the, the main part about board games is it's time together. Right. right. And so as long as everybody's enjoying themselves and laughing, you're going to remember that part of the game. That's why the fighting ensues. It's time together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, the good with the bad. There you go. By the way, Maureen, my edition's from the 1970s. It's not from the 1950s. Sorry, I didn't mean no, to No, that's that. okay. No, 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 no. I just no, no, think no. she still has it. Although, you know, it does look like it's from the 1950s because it's kind of beaten up by now. Um, why do you well think... Well loved. Wh- exactly. Why do you think this game has lasted? You know, lots of games come and go. Why do you think this one... I mean, it was, I guess, first made in the mid-19 or the early 1930s. Um, why is it still around? Well, I think for a lot of the reasons I just said is that it, it, it has such a, a simple way of playing and yet can be way more complicated. And you can play a short version, you can play a very long version, um, depending on who's playing and, and what's going on. There's also so many versions of it. Um, mm. My kids were playing Dogopoly all summer on our boat. Um, 
you know, so there, there's, it's just continually reinventing. It's like the Madonna of board games. Wow. Uh, now, do the pets do the pets get involved in that version or? Yeah, yeah. You adopt dogs instead of <laughs> buying houses, right? There There's you like go. Canadian versions, and so you learn something a little bit different in each version as well, right? The kids are telling me all about the traits of different dogs, and you know, different things about different uh, provinces in our in our Canadian version. There must be a stupor species. scoop sort of card in there somewhere. There must be something to. <laughs> You've got a fire hydrant. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You're not buying railroads, you're buying fire hydrants. Yeah, I think you're buying, I can't remember what it is. Maybe dog spots or something, yeah. So um, how do you explain in a digital world, and and my kids are are evidence of this, you you put this down and if you're sitting, they'll play it, they're fascinated with it. So why do you think this game distracts them from that and others don't? Well, you know, there's a lot, there seems to be, like your previous guest said, there's a lot of games now. So I think that that's just the difference is that when we're making quality time to spend together and putting down our phones and our screens, we're looking for something to unite us that way. And so you're looking for a game that's going to be multi-generational, that you can play together, that is going to um, be a challenge for adults as well as kids. And there's not that many that do it. And, you know, I think many would be surprised. It's it's less about the game and more about the kids. The kids just want to spend time with you. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. It's a, Board games are a, a reason to interact together. Even watching a movie, I mean, you're not really interacting together, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, at dinner, you're, you're having conversations, but it's sometimes hard to engage every member of the family. Um, so these are, these are things where people's attention is focused and you're creating a memory. All right, Maureen Dennis has been with us, mother of four, parenting expert and founder of WeWelcome.ca. That's WeWelcome.ca, talking about cheating monopoly. Maureen, thanks (laughs) for the time and insight. Appreciate it. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.